Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a national survey released today finds that a majority of Canadians support some type of fine that could amount to a health care tax for those who remain unvaccinated. Does this show a dark side to our psyche? Are this pandemic fatigue really getting to us? COVID-19 hospitalizations are looking very different in this Omicron wave compared to previous waves. What is playing a big part in this? Well, discover that. And Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole says Canada and the U.S. relations have never been worse. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University, is going to join us and talk about that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, of course, COVID-19 and the, the Omicron variant and a whole lot of other things still dominating the news and still dominating our lives, especially in light of the announcement yesterday uh, from the Quebec government that they are now considering and probably going to, since they have a majority government, institute a fine system for people that are not vaccinated. Well, with uh, COVID-19 cases putting Canada's hospitals at or near capacity, this uh, Quebec plan is uh, coming under an awful lot of fire. Laurie Paris has the details. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association says the tax plan is deeply troubling, noting the Charter of Rights and Freedoms recognizes individual autonomy over our bodies and medical decisions. In an emailed statement, the CCLA says the tax penalty is a divisive measure that will end up punishing and alienating those who may be in most need of public health supports and services. It calls on Quebec Premier François Legault's government to abandon what it calls a constitutionally vulnerable proposal. Quebec reported 2,742 COVID-related hospitalizations yesterday, with 255 patients in intensive care, along with another 62 deaths. Laurie Paris, the Canadian Press. Well, notwithstanding some of the uh, the angst and some of the crit- criticism that's going on here, uh, some recent polling here uh, indicates that uh, a lot of Canadians think this is a pretty good idea. Uh, to that end, I want to bring our good friend John Wright into the program. John, of course, is the uh, Executive Vice President of Maru Public Opinion. Uh, John, first of all, great to have you back in the program. Thanks for joining us today. Always a pleasure, Bill. Uh, this is, uh, you, you talk about, you know, being on the cutting edge right now. I mean, this policy was announced just a, a few hours ago, and, and you guys went right to work and started uh, getting public opinion on this, not just, of course, in Quebec, but on a national basis. Uh, and the results, I think, are, are very enlightening here. Uh, the majority of the people that you talked to over the last uh, few hours think this is not a bad idea. Yeah, in fact, we were ahead of the curve. We uh, we did this poll 48 hours ago and intended to release it uh, this morning anyway. So we didn't know that the Quebec Premier was going to make the announcement. So it is it, timely. I think, you know, you, you basically have 60% of people in support of such a measure, um, 40% against. It's highest in British Columbia and Quebec. Um, and then you'd look at Quebec specifically. It was interesting listening to the Civil Liberties Association statement about the constitutional vulnerability of it. We have to remember, though, that Quebec does have its own uh, notwithstanding clause. We also have to put it in political perspective that Francois Legault has been and continues to be uh, one of the uh, highest approved uh, premiers um, since being elected. He's way up in the 70s compared to Mr. Ford, who might be down in the 40s. Um, they have been very stringent in Quebec. Uh, you know, they've brought in curfews. Um, and, and they are actually the province most likely to believe that their healthcare services are under great pressure, that people can't get access to the services that they need. And this is all based on polling done in the last 10 days. So he walks into a situation which is open to uh, Quebecers um, not only talking about it, but having something come into play 
two thirds of them would support this uh, going in uh, into um, legislation. But again, it's it's a divisive area, and so we'll have to see how it uh, plays out over the next period of time. Yeah, and I, I understand the angst of the Civil Liberties Association. We, we understand that about rights mm-hmm. and individual choices, et cetera. But uh, as uh, the Premier mentioned yesterday, John, and, and frankly, it was backed up by his, his Justice Minister, who was also at the, uh, the presser, uh, you have the right not to do this if you want, but there are going to be consequences. He says that's the gist of this law. We're not d- demanding everybody get vaccinated. We're saying if you choose not to, there will be consequences. And that's not unprecedented in our society, is it? Well, on something like this, it is, it would be fairly uh, unprecedented because of the punitive nature and the fact that it's a healthcare. Yeah. The, the fact that we've had already surcharges on healthcare, even in this province alone. Secondly, that we tax people who smoke and we tax those who, you know, who buy liquor because it, you know, has to go for programs uh, that try to help people who drink too much. There are a number of surcharges in our society that we already accept. However, this would be the first punitive one that I'm aware of that would uh, open up the door for other particular measures. I mean, I think what a lot of people are saying this morning is, look, uh, if you put it here, what happens to people who don't uh, quit smoking or, in fact, you know, might be obese or have diabetes or have other conditions which may utilize hospital or healthcare services? I think that's the slippery slope that people are looking at. But clearly in Quebec, that is not so much of a worry and that the premier's got the ability to move forward on both the legal and the political front. Well, and and again, and also, as he suggested yesterday, also on the medical front, he says, you know, people that aren't vaccinated uh, statistically show that, you know, are probably contributing to the fact that this virus is hanging around. As I, I mentioned in my commentary, uh, you know, the unvaccinated could well be the wind beneath the wings of this pandemic spreading. I mean, the numbers here are troubling. And I, I, I get the sense from the polling you've done here, John, that it's reflective of a mood in this country right now that said, look, enough is enough. You know, we've, we're tired of this. We're try- tired of trying to, quote, unquote, educate people. You, you're either with us or you're not. And, and I think people are getting awfully frustrated right now. And, you know, I, I'm not certainly in line with a lot of the comments that the prime minister made about this. But one thing he did say, I think, that was bang on is people have just about had enough. Of, they're angry right now. Well, they, you know, people are, our year in poll showed that the top emotion in this country was frustrated. Second one was anxious. I mean, there's no question that this has had a terrible bearing on individuals, their families, and their, even their workplaces. But I think we have to remember a couple of things. Number one is this is provincial jurisdiction. I mean, the federal government can say whatever it wants, but the reality is that it is up to individual premiers and their legislatures to decide what they want to do. And there's clearly a bunch across the country that won't even go near this, not, not on a chance, absolutely. Uh, you know, in terms of a surcharge or having something more punitive. Secondly, we are dealing with a lot of people. I mean, we, you know, right from the get-go in the polling that I've been doing, I found that approximately 13% of people across this country would reject um, uh, a vaccine, 8% hard. So if you take a look at that and translate it into how many people that is, it runs somewhere between about 3.8 and 4.5 million people. That's a lot of people that this affects. So yes, we're tired. I think, you know, the and there are, yes, other people who are avoiding it in our society and we placed a lot of restrictions on them. It's, it's actually fun to note in a way that uh, when those restrictions were placed at liquor stores in Quebec and on uh, cannabis stores, no, numbers for vaccines shot up very quickly. But let's, you know, also keep in mind the following. 
Um, we have a lot of restrictions across this country on many different vices that we have. And we have, a, you know, these group of people who have decided not to um, go ahead and become vaccinated. The question then becomes, what is the role of the state? How far can they go? I mean, you can't force people to get a needle in their arm. You can't force people to have, uh, you know, be, be trucked away into a place or arrested. What you can do, however, is focus on those parts of your society that are most vulnerable at particular times and see whether or not you can alleviate it by having incentives put in place. And right now we've moved past the stage where we're talking about how many people overall are infected on a daily basis, but we're now focusing on ICUs and hospitalizations. And so the communication has shifted a bit from even a month ago, by the politicians and others who are focusing on where the strain in the system is, as opposed to the overall numbers of people. I guess the last thing I'd say is this. The Omicron is a different type of thing compared to Delta, because we have now, as of yesterday, reporting 38% of people in this country know of somebody in the past 10 days who have actually got this virus. And I know anybody who's listening today knows that it's in their households or their communities or on their streets, within their hockey teams, everywhere. What was about six months ago, something that other people were getting, we're now seeing it right in our own houses and backyards. That's democratized this. It's right on street level. It happens to be a little more mild. Um, you know, for those who are vaccinated anyways, but it's brought it down to Main Street level as opposed to being some kind of fiction. So I, I think it's, there are a number of conditions that are now leading to this next debate about, can we please get out of this? Can we, you know, move forward? And for those who are actually causing the system this kind of angst, can we make sure that they stop doing it? I think that's where the debate is, but it was a very different debate about three months ago. No, it was, and that's the companion piece. The other uh, information, of course, that you guys released yesterday, John, and it's mm -hmm. very uh, germane, I guess, to this discussion because I think it speaks to the frustration people are feeling right now. Uh, you know, they know somebody, a family member or a friend or something like that that tested positive, and uh, it's it's causing a great deal of angst. And I, I know you also look at some of the Quebec numbers here that you talked about, and uh, it comes to hospitalizations. You know, and you know, we we were told, well, this is not as serious as some of the other ones. Uh, but, you know, now we're finding out that by sheer volume, it's still putting pressure on our hospital system and on our ICUs. And as we've anticipated, and the numbers are bearing this out right now, the overwhelming majority of hospital admissions right now are non-vaccinated people. So I, that, I think, adds to this frustration people are feeling right now. It's like, you know, like, what are we going to do here and how can we put an end to this? I mean, you know, enough is enough. Is there going to be another wave? I, I think there's a lot of frustration, a lot of angst right now. Yeah, all of that is true. I think, however, the next stage of this will be interesting because um, people are finally going to say, look, we've got to get on with life. I mean, the, the impact of something, which is a mild, let's call it mild. And I, I, I'll admit on the air, we had it in our house over Christmas. One of our kids brought it home from university and double vaxxed, uh, went through a, probably 48 hours of a pretty rough time. I mean, 106 degree temperature, a whole lot of vomiting and a whole lot of coughing. It wasn't pleasant to watch, but made it through. So that's, if you want to say that that's mild, that's what it was. It also locked us down for 10 days, including Christmas. But let's put it this way. If people, you know, people are anxious and frustrated, but the question is now, where do we go from here? 
if we move into the spring, if we have this concept that lots of people have had it, that it's more mild than the Delta, is there going to be pressure on governments across this country to open up more and do things? The polling that we've released today, which is a broader uh, brush of the entire attitude of the country towards this, find a third in favor of a really serious lockdown, a third in favor of restrictions, and another third saying that we should just open it up and go back you know, the way we have been. We're going to have to live with this. And that is a shift towards more people being more lenient. The point being that if you took people who want it more open and those people who want some kind of restriction, they're now two thirds of the country as opposed to, you know, you know, the hard and and the restrictive being on the other end. I think, Bill, we're going to move into a different phase of the debate now where people say, look, enough is enough after two years of this and moving into our third year, we're going to have to live with this. It looks mild. It's in our backyards. We're going to have to move forward with the economy. I think that's where we're going to start to hear the debate in the next month or so. And we'll see. I mean, um, if, if we can get the hospital situation under control and we can have people's attitudes towards it, saying that this is the time to change, well, then there may well be a responsiveness from governments to do very much that, take those steps. The hospital aspect, though, is, is one of the keys there, though, don't you think, John? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I guess people are saying, look, we've had flu epidemics and influ- and, and but we've never seen the push on hospitals that we've seen with this. And if those numbers start to go down, I I, I agree with you totally. I think a lot more people are going to say, OK, let's move on. Uh, you know, it, it's tough. It's going to be with us forever, but let's let's move on. We've got this under control. And but we're not there yet. We might be by the end of the month. I mean, you saw the story the other day that Dr. Fauci on the weekend during one of the appearances on one of the news shows on Sunday morning uh, said he anticipates the numbers are going to fall considerably by the end of this month because that seemed to be the characteristic of Omicron, high spike, and then it goes down almost as quickly. We don't yeah, know if but, that's going to happen, but it might. Well, but to scoop, uh, to give you a scoop, I mean, we have another poll coming up tonight and tomorrow morning, which oh, actually talks to talks to the issue of what people are seeing at the local health care and community area. I mean, eight in 10 people are alarmed in this country that uh, they're seeing their hospitals go up. 83% are actually seeing that there are shortages. And But then you get into personal care. You have somewhere between a third and almost a half of people on a number of different measures that said that they either know somebody who has had to postpone some kind of uh, needed serious surgery, or they themselves have either A, not been able to get it, uh, not confident that they will be able to get it if they need it, or in fact, um, have postponed even seeing a doctor. That's about, uh, you know, 17% of people who have what they believe are serious symptoms and, and avoiding going to the doctor because of the Omicron virus. So this is having a very personal impact. And plus there's uh, prima facie evidence that it is happening. So again, um, the visibility of this is very much now in our backyards. It's in our communities. It's having an impact very close to home. Osler Hoskin uh, Hospital in the Toronto area closed its doors because of the impact of it. I think you know, once we see some alleviation there and we see some normalcy, then we'll start to move on from this. But people are seeing it at a very grassroots level. They're feeling it and they they see it and talk to people within their own crowd of family and people. And that's causing this kind of angst for sure. Well, uh, the work that you guys do is, is a key element in these debates and this discussion because uh, you're, you're getting a, a, a great read on how Canadians are feeling about this. John, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this. And uh, we'll, we'll look forward to the one that you're going to release later on today. And I'm sure we'll talk about that down the road. Thanks again. My pleasure, Bill. Take care.
You betcha. John Wright, Executive Vice President of Myro Public Opinion, and uh, keeping their finger on the pulse of how Canadians are feeling about this. And the debate will go on about uh, penalizing uh, people that don't get vaccinated. Uh, it looks like it's going to happen in Quebec. How it's actually going to roll out, uh, yet to be determined. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday here in Ontario, Health Minister uh, Christine Elliott addressed that. They had a presser yesterday. Uh, and said that, uh, well, the numbers here are traveling and they're going to try to do something about it. We continue to learn more about Omicron. For instance, the length of stay in intensive care units is decreasing slightly, with the median stay currently seven compared to 20 days during the peak of Delta. At this time, approximately 600 ICU beds remain available today, with the ability to add nearly 500 additional beds if required. And and the takeaway here is that, yes, it's having pressure on hospitals, but it seems to be a different kind of pressure than what we were used to uh, with the, the other waves. We've uh, tr- tried to ascertain exactly what's going on here and the impact that it's having and the frustration level that's uh, resulting in this. Uh, and to put it in perspective, we're so pleased to welcome to the program Carly Weeks, who is the health reporter uh, for the Globe and Mail, who've done extensive research on this. Carly, great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you for having me. The piece that you wrote uh, that, that appeared in the Globe, I think, really uh, outlines exactly what's happening here. You, you specifically talked about the, the Blue Water Health System in Sarnia, but other facilities as well, uh, and and they're they're experiencing some problems here. But it's a different kind of problem, and it's it's created a, I guess, a different sort of strategy that hospitals are going to have to use. Yeah, I mean, and, and certainly, I mean, I think what one thing that's really undeniable is the just overall demand. Uh, you know, the number of people that are, in, you know. During the pandemic, we're going to be seeing record ICU numbers, um, you know, probably across the country. But yes, the patient profile has changed. So there are a lot of unvaccinated patients who are being admitted. Um, this is concerning, obviously. Um, people who are unvaccinated tend to be younger. So the fact that they are making up a pretty big chunk of ICU admissions, um, it was up, it was about half yesterday. It's probably changing slightly. Then you have a whole other host of people who've been vaccinated uh, most of the time with two doses only, and they might have um, really frail health. So one common example is people with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. So people with a very serious chronic lung illness, um, any kind of infection can send them to hospital. So that's the kind of person who's starting to show up more and more in hospitals and sometimes in the ICU. They're seeing less COVID pneumonia. So less of the people that are just coming in with very serious lung disease caused specifically by COVID who need to be put on ventilators. So there's a little bit less of that and just more complex cases across the board. Um, so it's causing a big challenge, and it's going to be uh, a tough month. And, and I know that, you know, as, as this was starting to evolve, and this is going back a few weeks, Omicron has not been with us that long, as you mentioned in the piece. Uh, it's, it's, it's a different sort of an attitude. And we were told, well, it's not quite as, as, as severe. Uh, but as one of the doctors told you that you included in your reporting here, that said, yeah, there are so many people that are infected, and it's a smaller percentage, but it's still a big number. As, you know, a small percentage of a larger number is still causing an awful lot of angst within the hospitals. Exactly. And that's exactly the scenario that's playing out right now. Um, you know, we've seen uh, numerous hospitals sending out, you know, letters to the community, pleading with people to get vaccinated, to, to stay healthy, to, you know, only come if it's an emergency because they can't, you know, take any more pe- people on. It's it's a really dire situation. So, yes, in some cases it is more mild. So um, that's why some doctors say they're seeing less of the very severe COVID-related pneumonia right now. Now, there are still some patients with COVID pneumonia. Let's not, you know, get mistaken here. 
But the fact that there's less of it and there does appear to be less severe disease is, is a good thing. It's just that right now there's such a bottleneck. There's so many people that are sick all at the same time. The healthcare workers are stressed and burnt out. So it's very, very difficult for the system right now. And, and there's still more and more patients coming. Like we haven't reached the peak yet. So it's going to get worse before it gets better. And, and it kind of, I, I guess, underscores exactly what the, the medical officers of health, and we had Dr. Uni on the program again just the other day talking about how important vaccination is. And, and you've uh, included some stats in your reporting here that I think are, are very telling. Uh, the ICU occupancy rate among unvaccinated is 153 per million compared to about 11 million among those who had received. Uh, so it, it, I think it, it validates the, the assertion that an awful lot of the people that are being admitted to hospital and into ICU are the unvaccinated, and and that seems to be causing the the angst. And uh, are you getting the sense from the from the the healthcare experts you've talked to, uh, Carly, that they feel that if more people were vaccinated, these numbers would go down? Oh, definitely, and and they would. And and also, I mean, when you do look at the fact that there's vaccinated people who are in the hospital, a lot of those people likely haven't received their booster shot or hadn't received it sort of in time um, to prevent them from becoming sick with this new variant. So, like, that's one of the things doctors say they're seeing too. So we need have this booster shot campaign rolled out. We need to have people who are unvaccinated get their first dose. That is the best protection against severe disease. We know that it's unlikely to stop you from getting this variant, but it's likely to stop you I've gotten so much pushback from this piece by people who are saying, look at the numbers in the ICUs. There's so many vaccinated people there. Well, there's a lot of people in this province with very frail, poor health when one infection can send them over to the edge, they need help there in the hospital. There's, then there's a segment of the population, a very small segment of the population that tends to be younger, who's ending up in the hospital because they're choosing, in many cases, not to be vaccinated. That could be a very easy decision for a lot of those people who are out there still unvaccinated. You know, this variant will, will find you. you. You don't want to be one of the unlucky ones who ends up in the hospital with this. Um, you know, we don't have a lot of great treatments yet. They're coming, we hear, you know, this is the new Pfizer pill. But, you know, you just you want to protect yourself and uh, and and our healthcare system because it is stretched. Like, I don't know if this I mean, unprecedented is a word we said a lot during the pandemic. And it, it but it really applies here. And, and I know I, I understand some of the pushback you're getting. I, I get the same sort of thing here because uh, you can twist statistics and numbers around any way you want to try to, to validate some sort of a tell. And I know your experience in journalism. You've seen this happen dozens and dozens of times. Uh, and and you have included some of those numbers, of course, in your reporting about this. And it comes to uh, with, with the ICU and the impact that it's had on ICUs. Uh, yes, there are a lot of people that are vaccinated that are there, but it's because so many people are vaccinated. It's invariable. And I, I guess expected that, yes, some of them are going to be simply because so much of the population is vaccinated. But we've said right from the get-go that that doesn't mean that they're not going to catch the virus and be impacted by the virus. Exactly. Yeah. And and there's a lot of people who have had two doses. And again, as, as we say, they're older, they're in very frail health. And so they end up, they need to go to the hospital, they need to have some help. And that's why I think, um, you know, Minister Elliott alluded to the fact the ICU stays are, are shorter this time around, because a lot of the pa- patients that they're admitting are people that are in frail health, but they're being protected from those really severe outcomes. So they're actually, you know, they're being treated. And in many cases, they're, they're being discharged. Um, whereas when you do look at the younger unvaccinated population, you know, that's where I think you're going to see a uh, uh, probably a stronger likelihood of some of the more severe COVID outcomes simply because those people have no protection from severe illness. So you're just, you're, you know, the, a numbers game again. You're going to see a, a number of them who become very severely ill and die as a result. And it's not a pleasant, uh, it's not a pleasant way to go. Um, so, you know, yes, the numbers are, are, can be confusing, but the evidence is very clear that 
uh, two doses are what you need to protect against severe disease. Three doses will are even better than two, um, but at the very least, get even one dose in your arm to protect yourself. As you were doing the research for this, and I know you talked extensively with a number of people in the healthcare field, uh, you know, I mentioned about what was going on, of course, in the Sarni era, but you've talked to others as well. How are they reacting to the stress this is putting on hospitals? I mean, we've heard about it from an abstract point of view. Well, you know, surgeries have been canceled. Other medical procedures have been canceled. I mentioned on the show the other day, I, a friend of mine in the neighborhood here who was supposed to be having a, an, an angiogram. They're, they're concerned about the possible blockage. Well, it's been canceled now. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's saying, you know, am I going to be okay? Am I going to have a heart attack? What's going to happen to me? They don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a great deal of angst within the, the community about that. How are the, the staff at hospitals responding to this? I mean, I don't think I've ever seen such a bleak picture in healthcare in all of the years I've covered health. Um, obviously, this is a pandemic that's going on two years. Um, even during the scope of the pandemic, I don't think things have ever been this kind of rough. Um, healthcare staff have been through so many waves already. They've barely had a chance to catch their breath. A lot of people have left the profession because it's just simply too much for them to bear. Um, and the people that are remaining, they're having to, you know, work double shifts. They're canceling holidays, much needed breaks away from the hospital. Um, it's like all hands on deck and that's still not enough. And it's really having a, a very big impact. It's going to have a psychological toll um, as well as just a physical toll that I don't think we're going to really unpack for, you know, for years. Like one of the, one of the main uh, you know, problems we're going to have to deal with that when this is all over is, is how do we kind of repair this healthcare workforce? Well, and I know the, the health minister talked about that. There was a segment we've been trying to discuss over the last couple of days about uh, trying to fill those, those, those vacancies right now, um, you know, with internationally trained nurses. And it looks like they're finally going to loosen some of the restrictions on that. And that's, that's part of the solution, not the entire solution. Uh, but, you know, as more people become infected, and this is one of the things uh, that you've reported on uh, in your work here, Carly, is uh, uh, even those dedicated folks that are saying, no, I'm going to stick this out. If they get sick, the, the protocol suggests they got to stay home uh, so, for at least four mm-hmm. or five days. And that's putting a huge strain on staffing, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. And that's why we've seen a couple of provinces move towards saying, OK, if you test positive and, you, you know, I think uh, it, you, know, you don't have symptoms, you can still come to work because we know there's a segment of the population that has no symptoms. Um, so that is an illustration of how serious the situation is. It's kind of like every any solution is on the table right now, because as you say, there are so many people who are isolating. Um, it's really creating another major stress on the system. So many people who are off. Uh, and so I think that um, there will likely make, need to be some policy changes made and, and some things looked at just to get us through this next little bit. Now, the good news is this is not going to last forever. We're, we're, you know, looking at the experience of other countries. We hope the worst will be over soon. But uh, how do we get there? We, we need a bridge to help us get there. And, and what are the suggestions about that? I mean, as you mentioned, uh, you know, if, if the numbers start dropping next week and you know, we all hope and pray that it does, uh, that's not going to relieve the strain on hospitals right away, is it? No, it won't, because, you know, the hospitals are always that lagging indicator. Um, and, you know, it's, it's difficult. We were talking yesterday how it's, we're even going to know we're past the peak because we're barely testing anyone anymore. So we're going to have to be looking at how full the hospitals are. Um, it'll probably be, you know, uh, uh, several weeks still, even after the, the cases start to drop, you know, uh, the number of infections drop. It will take time for the hospitals to start to, the, the pressure there to start to be relieved. Um, you know, and there's so much debate right now about why weren't we ready for this? Why isn't our healthcare system prepared for this? And, you know, I think those are really, those are really, really valid questions we're going to have to examine. But, uh, you know, we're in a crisis mode right now. And so what, yeah, what are some of the solutions? Getting more nurses immediately into, um, into hospitals, getting other, there's other healthcare professionals that we need. There's only so many people to go around and it's a very, very difficult situation. Um, 
It is worth noting, though, every year, you know, around this time, you know, hospitals are stressed and they're over capacity. So we do, this is a long-term problem we do need to fix. You mentioned reporting. That's a very important part of this. And and it's causing a great deal of angst, I think. Uh, as I've talked to some of the folks on the Ontario Science Table who are advising the, the, the Ontario government about this, uh, and we see the numbers in probably about another half hour, as you know, Carla, we're going to get another update about the number of new cases uh, reported in the province. But that's not even a, a, a true number, is it? Because if we know that because there's not as much testing going on, that that's only a fraction of the number of new cases. And many of them go unreported simply because, as you mentioned, we're not doing as much testing. We're not doing as much reporting on right now. Uh, so do we have any concept at all? I mean, is there a, a ratio here to say, well, that number that's going to be like 1,500 or hopefully whatever lower than that might be four times higher in reality? We, we don't really mm-hmm. know that number yet, do we? We really don't. And I mean, I've been speaking to some people about this who with their best guesses. And, um, you know, you look at the positivity rate, you try to do some calculations based on that. Um, you know, one person I spoke to said that there's probably somewhere around 100,000 cases a day in Ontario right now, um, which seems pretty realistic given um, just how widespread this is and how the growth was going at the point when they restricted testing. Um, so this thing is it's everywhere. Uh, it's infecting many people, and and yeah, a large uh, you know portion of those are, are, are getting sick just the, by numbers. Again, it's a, it tends to be a less severe disease causing variant, but there's going to be a lot of people ending up in the hospital because so many are, are getting infected. So the case numbers that the province is posting and other provinces are following suit, they're largely meaningless right now. So we're kind of flying a little bit blind, and it's uh, it's a really really um, weird time in this pandemic to be navigating through this well and and the, another element to this and i know you've reported on this uh, way back in the old days between the second and third wave it seems like it was 100 years ago now mm-hmm. uh is the backlog that's being caused here uh, because of what's going on in hospitals they're canceling surgeries they're canceling medical procedures uh, whether it's like as i mentioned the angiogram tests or any number of other things uh, at some point they got to play catch up uh, with those people. And so, you know, like I say, even if, if Omicron starts to disappear by springtime, uh, I, do you have any idea, have the, the the hospital experts told you at all how long it's going to try to take to get that backlog back up? I think that even the best experts don't don't really know. You know, we've heard ministers in press conferences talk about, you know, how much we've caught up over the summer and that kind of thing. But, the, the, you know, the, the true toll of not doing a procedure, it's really difficult to quantify, right? Like, what's the impact on your friend who can't get an angiogram? What's the impact on his life and um, his mental state? And all of those things, they're so hard to quantify. And I think it's really going to take time to fully understand the consequences of forcing everyone to wait. Everyone, you know, cancer patients, um, heart patients, and all of the other patients out there waiting, you know, people that need cataracts removed or hip and knee replacement. These are things that are impacting their quality of life. Um, so this is going to have a ripple effect for so many years. And some people will never recover, right? Like this, this will impact some people. We've heard tragic stories of people that have died waiting for surgery. Um, we don't want that to happen, obviously. But it, it, in some cases, it has. And it, it likely will again. Um, in other cases, people's health will continue to get progressively worse. People are not able to get in to see specialists. Everything is, you know, a, a bottleneck and everything's a wait. And uh, this is, I mean, it's it's a real devastating uh aspect of this pandemic that I think is not even in the forefront right now because we're so focused on this variant. 
I, I've not heard this, but in your reporting, was there even a a, a speck of, of of some of these folks simply saying, "Well, I told you so"? I mean, because many of these people that you've talked to over the last couple of months to try to to ascertain what's happening here are the same ones that were were waving red flags when governments were cutting back, you know, funding for hospitals and 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 you know, not as many nurses were graduating, etc. And they said, "Okay, fine, you know, if something happens." You know, we're going to be in big trouble. And I, I know that a lot of us just said, oh, come on, we don't get pandemics anymore. That's something for the, the 19th century. That doesn't happen here anymore. Well, here we are. Uh, and, oh, yeah. And I, I, you know, there's probably quite a few people, I guess, Carter, that could say I told you so. Uh, to their credit, they're not saying it, but I got to figure a lot of them are thinking it. Oh, yeah. A lot of people could be saying it. And, you know, to their credit, most health professionals I speak to, you know, are very, very uh, expert and professional in, in you know, when, when we talk. They, they don't wait into any sort of political debate or, you know, that what we should have done this. But, you know, at the same time, I have had many conversations with people who have pointed out, look, this is something we knew was going to happen. This is uh, this was predicted. We didn't have to be in this situation. And, you know, the thing with public health is that uh, it's only as good as, like, you don't see what you're preventing, right? So that's why it, it's, so, it's such an easy area to cut because you can't, you know, you don't see the impact of people not getting the flu or of avoiding a pandemic. So you figure, well, we can get that. We don't need to pay for this anymore because what are we even paying for? But, you know, as you see, when you get rid of things and you sort of cut, 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 um, we end up in a situation where we're kind of not prepared, right? Well, we're, we're definitely not prepared for this kind of a pandemic. Few were, uh, but there's, you know, things we need to think about for next time. And there will be a next time, hopefully nothing, is, uh, you know, in terms of the scale and scope. Well, it's uh, it's important that we have information and facts, and, and it's important that we get input from uh, the people that are on the front line. And uh, you do such a great job of that. I'm glad you had some time to talk to us about this today, Carly. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Carly Weeks, of course, who is the health reporter for the Globe and Mail. You can check it out. Uh, there are the, her articles, of course, all appear online. Uh, just go to the webpage there, globeandmail.ca, and uh, get all the information about what's happening. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole uh, says that uh, Canada-U.S. relations are at their lowest point in decades. Uh, development, he says, threatens to stall Canada's growth and derail some sectors of the economy. He was speaking at a virtual uh, event in Nova Scotia to uh, Chambers of Commerce there. It's not unusual, and it's not the headline, of course, that the opposition leader is, uh, is you know, firing some political bombast at uh, the government. That happens on a pretty consistent basis. But is there some truth to this? I mean, there are some concerns about what's happened with uh, trade agreements and tariffs, et cetera, over the last little while. Is there a trend here that's uh, that's troubling? Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Laura Turnbull. Dr. Turnbull, of course, is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, pleasure to have you back in the program, doctor. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me back. Is this political bombast, or is this uh, this uh, shining the light on on a growing problem here? Is, uh, what? How do you write the relations between the two countries right now? I mean, we're we're told that the prime minister and President Biden are friendly. Uh, they've known each other for quite a few years right now. Is there supposed to be an advantage here, a discernible advantage, or uh, exactly how do you see this relationship? I mean, I, clearly there's a, a good rapport between the two leaders and there's no sense that there's a breakdown in communication or that staff and officials are not communicating well. I mean, to the contrary, there's definitely lots of back and forth between the two countries. I think historically we're at a 
kind of critical moment at this point where, um, you know, both countries are facing a lot of pressure because of COVID-19, because of the economic impacts of all of that, because of larger global realities, including the relationship with China. There's all kinds of things going on that are making this particular moment difficult, and it would be difficult regardless of who the leaders were. Um, and I think definitely there's a lot of pressure on President Biden to to be going forward with protectionist by America, you know, make America, whatever, you know, kind of policies at this point. And th those realities are going to be present and they're going to act on him again, regardless of what the relationship is with China. And so I think some of that is just, it's going to be the way it is. And I mean, compared to what we had to deal with during the Trump administration years, I, I don't think you could argue that things have gotten worse, but definitely there are, there are definitely some things about the relationship that maybe thing people thought might improve with Biden that things, ha and, and they haven't really changed. One of the phrases, uh, and it's not the first time Mr. O'Toole has used this, of course, uh, but he, he, he focused a little bit uh, during his, uh, his uh, talk with the chambers there uh, about supply chain and, and essentially kind of laying the blame for this at, at Justin Trudeau and saying, well, you know, you've screwed this up. You should have been doing something. Uh, and I'm not going to sit here and try to defend the prime minister on this, but this is a global problem, isn't it? This is not just a Canada problem. Oh, 100%. And I mean, yes, like there, you can definitely point point to a history of an integrated supply chain and the benefits of that for both countries. There's no doubt about that. But yes, I mean, as you say, that those issues are across the globe at this point. And again, like to, to kind of bring it back to another point that the conservatives have been making around inflation, as though it, this is somehow a made in Canada, Justin Trudeau kind of problem. That's all over the world, right? And so we're seeing how integrated these problems are and the inescapability of these problems. And so I think, you know, as an opposition leader, obviously it's his job, right? Like not to be helping sure. the prime minister, but to be making an argument that, you know what, if it was, if we were in charge, things would be better. But, uh, you know, I don't know if, if, he, if he can, he's totally on solid ground with that. Well, because that's the economic reality, isn't it? I mean, we're a trading nation and, and we certainly export uh, an awful lot of products and we rely on imports, of course, for an awful lot of our economy. When that, that chain is broken, and as you mentioned, it's happened all over the world. Of course, it's going to have an impact on us. I, I don't know that there's a defense against something like that unless you maintain that you can be self-sustainable. And I don't think anybody can be in this global economy, can they? No, absolutely not. And I don't think that would be desirable. And again, I mean, I think, I mean, and not to not to defend the current government either. I mean, obviously, um, it's still kind of early days in our relationship with the Biden administration. And COVID-19 has put a kind of emergency uh, you know, cloud over everything where I think there's, there's always attention focused elsewhere. There's always, you know, eyes are focused on when we can get out of lockdown, when we can kind of get back to some kind of normal. And so that's sort of a, again, a cloud over all of the other things that we're talking about with respect to trade and economic growth and everything else. But yeah, I mean, like, it's the job of the Canadian government to make the argument that the Americans benefit from the, the integrated supply chain as well. And so to take a, a buy America, America first kind of approach, you know, is, is short-sighted in ways that they'll see down the road. So even if it's politically sensible and politically expedient to do it, to try to resist that urge, because it's actually not going to work out in the long run. And, and not the first time this has been tried. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, certainly the Trump administration uh, used that as one of the, the main thrusts of, of their uh, policies vis-a-vis uh, -vis Canada. The Obama administration, I mean, you know, Joe Biden was a part of the Obama administration mm -hmm. for eight years, too. And, and they adopted a Buy America policy during their economic recovery after the recession in 2008-2009. Uh, they, they modified it a little bit after some serious negotiations with Canadian officials. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'm like, I'm, I, I'd like to think that the, now President Biden is, is going to, you know, learn from that history because he was part of that negotiation uh, to see that there's got to be some some flexibility here too. But we don't seem to be there yet. 
But mm -hmm. I, I agree with your point, though, Doctor. I think a lot of the pressure that's coming uh, from the states right now is not necessarily coming from the White House. It's coming from the Congress uh, because of, of the, the, the politics that's going on within there. I mean, a classic example of that, I guess, is Senator Manchin from Virginia, who's supposed to be a Democrat, uh, but he's in a very Republican state and he's up for re-election this year and he's towing the Republican line because he wants to get re-elected. There's a lot of people in the situation like that and that's having an influence on, on Canada-U.S. relations. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, all eyes have been on Joe Manchin for a while now. And I mean, to be honest, like what make as we know this, what, what makes sense politically doesn't isn't always the thing that makes sense from a policy perspective. There are going there is going to be messages and, you know, kind of value statements and galvanizing messages that are sent across the board that will make sense to people from a kind of cultural perspective, from a political perspective. And America has a long history of cocooning and going to economic protectionism during times of economic crisis. It tends to be how they've tried to rebuild. And so there's nothing new about what Biden is doing, like not at all. And there could be things that, that again, like really resonate from a political perspective. And obviously he's in midterm elections this, this year and they're campaigning all the time. And so of course he's going to be sensitive to these sorts of things. And what, what ends up being said outside and, you know, to the cameras, to the media and to, you know, Trudeau when they're having bilateral meetings, that's not necessarily indicative of everything that's being said in closed doors. And we know that stuff, right? And so it's always a bit, a bit frustrating to watch these uh, negotiations unfold, knowing that we never quite have the whole story. And again, you get half the story. I, 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 yeah. Points well taken. I, I understand. This is O'Toole's job to criticize the government and try to put them in a bad light. I understand that. Uh, but, you know, when you speak in, in half-truths an awful lot of the time to try to validate your argument, it's frustrating. Uh, you know, he goes about, for instance, about the fact that they, they just lost a, a trade battle uh, about supply mm -hmm. management. Uh, the United States has been concerned about the supply management uh, dairy scenario in Canada for years. And it was one of the controversial points of, of the negotiations with the new NAFTA, too, wasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and even that like has been going on for, for years. And, and yes, like you make a really good point. Like a lot of the things that, again, Aaron O'Toole is trying to put at Justin Trudeau's doorstep are things that have long been conversations that are, are older than both of their political careers. And so there's a bit of a sense of, okay, what, what do you really mean by this? But I think that like, it's interesting to, to consider Aaron O'Toole's comments, not just in the context of the Canada-US relationship, but also in the context of the political climate in Canada and where Aaron O'Toole is sitting right now. He has the very unenviable job of trying to get traction as an opposition leader when parliament is not sitting, when it's a pandemic, when everybody's thinking about their job, their kids, their money, when they're going to be able to get out of their house, particularly in Ontario, where there's a you know still a lockdown in many, in many ways. It's difficult for Aaron O'Toole, I think, to try to be able to get anybody's attention, which is why I think some of the statements he's making are a little, you know, they're, they're, they're attention seeking in a way to, you know, hey, I'm over here, pay attention to me kind of thing, because it's really tough for him. He can't ask the prime minister questions in question period right now. Yeah, and, and there's a political reality here. I mean, he brought up the software lumber thing. Well, the software lumber mm -hmm. debate has been going on for over 20 years. Uh, off yes. and on between the two countries. Uh, you know, the, he mentioned the steel and aluminum tariffs. Well, first of all, that was the Trump administration. And we did retaliate against that. And if I recall, as a matter of fact, the conservatives, when Parliament was sitting, uh, criticized the government for retaliating and said that you're going to ruin yes. Canada-U.S. relations. Well, it did force them to back down. I mean, that, you know, that's why the, those tariffs aren't in place anymore. 
That's it. You're right. And yeah, I, it's interesting to watch, you know, if, as you kind of go back through, whether it's through his Twitter account or through the statements that he's made in the House or to the media. Yes, they have this conservatives have seemed to be on both sides of it, where it seems that according to them, the government can't do anything right. And but the truth is, it's an ongoing. Obviously, it's an ongoing relationship. It, there's never going to be a time where we say, OK, we nailed it. <laughs> we figured out the Americans. That's it. That we were always going to be negotiating every day. And every agreement we make with, with them is still going to be subject to negotiation as situations change. One of the things he jumped on, too, was a, a quote that uh, the president had made here that said that uh, uh, his relationship with Canada was one of his easiest uh, relationships. Mr. Mm-hmm. O'Toole has uh, has decided that that means that we're pushovers. Uh, is, is that a bit of a stretch or is there something to that? I mean, I think he's trying to draw attention to the fact that there's a power imbalance between the two countries. And yes, obviously there is. We know that. And that's been the reality, again, of the relationship since for, for decades, right? Like that's that's the way things are. But at the same time, I think, um, you know, imagine if the president had said something different, like this is the most difficult relationship we have, right? Like in, in some ways, like it's not a bad thing for him to say, you know what, this is a non-stress relationship for me. But again, I think him saying that speaks to the reality of the fact that on the Canadian side, we probably don't see it as our easiest relationship. There is an imbalance, you know, and and that's, again, that's a reality that's going to transcend any particular tenure of a prime minister or a president. How do you, uh, maybe finding the balance is the wrong phrase here, though, doctor, but how do you how do you rest easy and how do you find a comfort level with that? Uh, you know, since since the Confederation, uh, they've been, you know, as, as, you know, Pierre Trudeau said, his father said, you know, every time that, you know, uh, you know, the, the United States sneezes, we get a cold. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they're going to be a major influence. Us, and they're bigger and they're stronger than we are. And we know that. Uh, do we have to define this by, well, we won this and they won that? Or are we looking for, you know, getting along and, and, and some mutual understandings? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what the point around, like, for example, the integrated supply chain is like the essence of that is really the point that you're making. It's not who wins at the end of it. It's not a zero sum thing. The point is that we have mutual we have, you know, opportunities for mutual advantage and mutual gain. And so let's, let's jump onto those. Of course, the other piece that we, we haven't really gotten to a whole lot is the relationship with China, because the U.S. is not in a position anymore of being the global superpower, period. That's it, right? Like there is also this looming question around how they're going to, to respond to the growth of China and how Canada is going to respond to that as well and how we're going to be working with a number of allies, not just the US. And so it's all relative, right? Like those, those situations will, will change over time. And I think that's, that's going to be a key piece in our relationship with the US going forward is they're looking for us to, to signal how we're going to change our policy with respect to China and what that's going to look like going forward. And that is going to determine, that's going to have a big effect on some of those trade questions too. Well, and, you know, we've talked about this, the, the Canada-China relationships and, of course, the two Michaels and those scenarios. Mm-hmm. And, and any time that we tend to push back, we're always concerned about retaliation. Uh, that, that same attitude applies to, to Canada-U.S. relations, doesn't it, to a certain extent? I mean, when we have pushed back, uh, you know, the John Cretchen's refusal to, 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 you know, to go into a war, a proof is a better proof, a proof, we know that speech now. But there was there was economic retaliation from the Bush administration because they didn't do that uh, when they refused to jump into the Star Wars program. Prime Minister Martin at that time there was economic pushback then too. So there are ramifications, notwithstanding the friendship between the two of them. And I guess you have to tread lightly, don't you? Yeah, it's true, right? And again, like it's it's never over and done with, right? Like as much as we might gain in some ways, we lose other ways, and the whole thing keeps going. But again, I think that's where 
the the kind of multilateral questions become interesting, right? Because if it's always, if you put it in the box of Canada, US, nobody else, well, then it starts to look like, yeah, every time we're negotiating on something, either we come out on top or we don't. But if you then add in other players and look at how, you know, a number of countries might work together on common goals, it gets a bit more complex than just a zero sum. And then there's a, there's a win or a loss, right? Like it, then there's a whole bunch of factors taken in. And so what happens in one area might affect what happens in another area too. And then it's hard, like it's hard to, to kind of boil it all down. But ultimately I, I don't know that Aero tool is going to get a whole lot of traction with this point around, you know, this is, the, I, I don't know that it really resonates. This is the worst the relationship has ever been. It seems like such a, a drastic thing, an extreme thing to say, when in fact the two countries, you know, the leaders are, are getting along well, but yes, absolutely. We're at a complex point where like, no matter who the leaders were, it, it was going to be difficult today. And, and a lot of the stuff, uh, to use the, the term that, that the, uh, Mr. O'Toole used anyway, about conflicts, are, are, are skirmishes as opposed to conflicts, are they not? I mean, mm-hmm. even the supply management thing with the dairy industry, that's really something that started in the last administration. It was to placate the people in Wisconsin, which is a, a swing state uh, when mm-hmm. it comes to U.S. elections, and there's elections coming up this year. So, of course, they're going to do this. And we already know from the, uh, the, re- the recent negotiations in uh, the new NAFTA deal that, uh, I mean, the U.S. government subsidizes Wisconsin farmers, too. Uh, you know, they're just it's just a done in a different way. So, I mean, there's a little bit of, of a double standard that's in play here. And uh, and even when that announcement was made last week, the Canadian government was trying to spin it and say, well, no, we both win uh, because, you know, we've got access to the U.S. market right now, too. So it's it, it's really, I guess, in the eye of the beholder here, isn't it? Yeah. And to a certain extent, I mean, when there's real harmony between the two countries and there's no conflict, there's no sign of pushback, even that can look like the relationship is too cozy, uh, that things are going, we're not opposing enough. And so it is, I mean, definitely, there's a definite optics question here. And the opposition leader, part of his job is to get people to question that, to spin that in a certain way, to get people to, to be critical of the government's approach. And again, there's a it's always a judgment call to a certain extent about how we're going to play something. And yeah, like we governments have to make those decisions and then be accountable for them as they go forward. But again, like some of the things that you're talking about in terms of um, sectors, industries that are really critical to states in the U S and to provinces here, like that's where the ultimate accountability is, no matter what happens between the two countries, they have to take it home and sell it. And so Whatever happens in terms of the conversations on the integrated supply chain, that affects industries at home that are critical for, you know, not to be totally politically coarse about it, but they're they're critical for re-election prospects. They're, they're critical if it's in a high density population area like Toronto and, and surrounding areas. So, yeah, I mean, that's politicians never lose sight of that, you know, regardless of the power relationship between Canada and the U.S. Notwithstanding all that, I, I see this as a pivotal year, though, don't you, Dr. But especially when it comes to these relations vis-a-vis trade. Uh, and the auto sector part of it. I mean, you know, the the, uh, the Buy America policy and the impact that could have on the auto industry, especially uh, here in Ontario with uh, some of the commitments that uh, some of the major automakers have made here. Uh, they smoothed that out back in 2009, and Biden was a part of those negotiations. Uh, you'd like to think that there's going to be a similar result with this now to say, you know, look at these, you know, these automobiles go back and forth five or ten times between the borders now anyway. Uh, it's It's almost impossible to define what is an American-made car these days. And, yes. and I think they have to accept that reality, don't they? Well, that's it. Right. And, I, and I'm thinking we're going to be sticking to that point, like the idea of somehow unpacking that in a real way and saying, this is a Canadian car and this is an American car. Like that would be undoing a whole long history of coordination and cooperation. And so at the end of it, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think, 
I, I can't imagine a scenario where that's the that's where we're going to land. But at the same time, the conversations are definitely definitely going to be key and keeping on going. And I think you're right. This is going to be a critical time, especially as Biden is at a critical point in his pre- in his his presidency, and as um, the two countries are looking to reset sectors after COVID nineteen. It, it is a kind of, I think, a, an opportunity to to make really critical decisions now. Well, it's going to be interesting to see what's happening going forward and uh, the impact it's going to have on some of these discussions. Uh, always a pleasure, Doctor. Thank you so much for the time. It was great talking with you again today. You too. Thanks so much. Have a good one. You betcha. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, of course, from Dalhousie University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.